Um, before we start, uh, there, there's been some discussion in this room and over the lunch tables about uh, just how dire our, our, our government's fiscal situation is, and I wanted to clarify uh, for a minute um, what some of that discussion's been about. As Tom pointed out the first day we arrived here, uh, the government's got these unfunded uh, um, promises to make future payments that add up to far more than they can plausibly uh, fulfill. Um, no informed observer doubts that, and there's, that, that's not a controversial statement, that, that they, they cannot do all the things they promised to do. Uh, my only minor beef with Tom was uh, the, the phrase he chose to describe that. Tom said, we're broke. The reason I don't like that phrase is that when you say, we're broke, well, we are not the government. It's not we who are broke, okay? It's the government that has made promises that they can't fulfill. And I just wanna uh, show you a slide or two to indicate why I think that's an important distinction. Let's think about what your family's finances look like versus what the government's finances look like. Let's uh, take a quiz question. Your family spends too much. You've been being irresponsible. You're worried that, that you can't sustain the path that you're on. You got uh, uh, three possible uh, solutions that you're considering for that. One is you could try to spend less, cut back on your spending. A second is you could find a way to earn more. And a third is you could visit the ATM and solve the problem that way. Now, of those three, which ones are going to work? I hope we all see that the first and the second are, are, could be solutions to your problem. The third one is not. If my family has been struggling and I come home one day and say to my wife, guess what, I bought a kayak, and she says, gee, I don't think we can afford a kayak, I am unlikely to mollify her by saying, don't worry, dear, I got it from our savings account. <laughs> now, let's look at the government's problem. Your government's been spending too much. They're on a path they can't sustain. Which of the following paths might be a path back to fiscal sanity? Spend less, that works. Raise taxes. Raise ta a lot of people think that raise taxes is the government's equivalent of earning more, but it's not. It's the equivalent of visiting the ATM because raising taxes means taking money out of our savings accounts. Our savings accounts are the government's ATM. That's where they go when they need uh, uh, extra funds to cover things they've promised to do. They come to us, okay? We are their ATM. We would like them to make fewer withdrawals from that ATM for a couple of reasons. The minor reason is we'd like them to leave that money there for future emergencies, but the much more bigger reason is we'd like to leave that money there so that we can spend it ourselves. Um, raising taxes is not like earning more. Earning more creates wealth. Earning more means going out in the world and making the world a richer place so there's more wealth for somebody, in this case you, to, to dispose of. Raising taxes doesn't do that. That just takes money out of savings accounts. Uh, so when we have all these fiscal commissions and these super committees charged with solving our fiscal problem, and they say, well, we're gonna do this partly 
by cutting back on expenditures and partly by raising taxes. It's like me telling my wife, I'm going to deal with, the, I, I bought this kayak we can't afford. I'm going to try to earn a little more money, but, but I'm also going to try and solve the problem by taking it out of our savings account. Raising taxes does not count as a, a step towards solving fiscal irresponsibility. Fiscal irresponsibility means spending money in irresponsible ways, and the only way you can do less of that is by spending less money in irresponsible ways. To, uh, to sort of reinforce that point, that it's the spending that matters, as opposed to the taxes or the financing or the debt, let's consider two possible scenarios. Here's my first scenario. This is a true scenario, although you've got to add many, many zeros to it. 20 years ago, the government spent $1,000 worth of borrowed money, and today they owe $2,000 because they've, the debt on that, the interest on that has built up, and eventually they're going to get that from you. That's a bad situation. That's a situation we're in now. What is the alternative situation? Well, one alternative situation is that maybe they could have spent less then we'd be in less trouble. A lot of people think that another way we could have been in less trouble is if only they had paid for that spending as they went along, if they had raised taxes, if they had visited the ATM. Well, where would we be then? That's scenario B. 20 years ago, the government spent $1,000 worth of tax revenue, which they got from you. Now, naively, you look at that and you say, well, that's not so bad. In scenario A, I'm out $2,000. In scenario B, I'm out $1,000. What that overlooks is that if they took $1,000 from you 20 years ago, you have lost 20 years' worth of interest that you could have earned on that $1,000. That $1,000 sitting in your bank account would have turned into $2,000 by now. And so what you're really out, your bank account is depleted by $2,000, the 1,000 they took plus 20 years of interest. In other words, Every $1,000 that they spent 20 years ago is costing you $2,000 today. It doesn't matter whether they borrowed the money. It doesn't matter whether they paid for it with taxes. And to, to believe that they can convert irresponsible spending to responsible spending by raising taxes as they go is a great illusion. The only way you can limit irresponsible spending is by spending less or, or by spending less irresponsibly. I mean, uh, so, uh, having said that, let me go on to what I had planned to talk about today. Um, I want to tell you some stories about how markets work. Uh, these talks are perhaps out of order from what it says in the schedule. Uh, I, I have a, a series of stories. We'll see how many we get through. My first one is a story I call Eating Right. It begins with an article that was in the New York Times. Uh, uh, a little while ago. It's an op-ed by Stephen Budiansky, a, a fellow who calls himself the liberal curmudgeon. Uh, I don't think he means the word liberal the way you and I do. Um, and his article was called Math Lessons for Locavores. A locavore is, in Budiansky's own words, somebody who believes that it is sinful in New York to buy a tomato grown in California because of the energy spent to truck it across the country. In other words, this is the local foods movement. There is a recent book out called The Locavore's Dilemma, which uh, makes a lot of the same criticisms that Budiansky made. I have not read that book, and I cannot speak to that. But my understanding is that it uh, makes a lot of the same points that he made in his op-ed, and that's what I'm going to talk about. His argument was that 
locavorism is short-sighted because it overlooks the fact that trucking a tomato across the country is not the only energy cost of eating a tomato. And if you care about conserving energy, you should also care about, for example, what if the alternative is a, a New York tomato that's grown in a lavishly heated greenhouse? Maybe you should care about that. What about the energy that was consumed by the fertilizers and the chemicals in each location? What about the energy costs of storage? He encourages readers to worry about all those things if they wanted to be responsible, socially conscious consumers. And I agree, if you want to be a really hyper-responsible, socially conscious consumer, you should care about all those things. But what Budiansky overlooked is there's a lot of other things you should care about also. Namely, how many grapes were sacrificed because those tomatoes were grown on land that could have been a vineyard? How many morning commutes were lengthened because that New York greenhouse was built in a place where there could have been a convenient housing development? How many shopping malls weren't built because of the location of that vineyard or that, uh, or, or that, or that greenhouse? How many California workers were employed on that vineyard who could otherwise have been doing some other useful task? That, that did not get done because of that? How many New York workers were employed in that greenhouse who could have otherwise been doing some useful task that didn't get done because of that? What about the, what were the alternative uses of the fertilizer that was used in each place? The farm equipment, the greenhouse equipment, or better yet, what were the alternative uses of the resources that went into producing that fertilizer and that farm equipment and that greenhouse equipment? Well, if you want to be a really socially conscious consumer, you should probably take account of all those costs, right? And better yet, you better update your calculations hourly because costs change hourly. What's the cost of putting a guy to work on a California vineyard? It depends what his alternative activity is. That changes from hour to hour. What's the cost of shipping a tomato from California to New York? That depends on how much e extra space there is on the next truck going out. That's something that changes from hour to hour. If you want to be a really socially conscious consumer in the sense that Budiansky's talking about, you want to do all those calculations, count for all those things, and all the 175 other things that I didn't think of, update them hourly, and then make your choice about which tomato to buy. Okay. Or I got another option for you. Okay. You could look at the prices of the tomatoes because the price of a tomato to a very, very, very good approximation and to a much better approximation than you're ever going to do with your calculations reflects all of those social costs. The price reflects those social costs. If the vineyard in California is on very valuable land that could have been used for something else, that tomato is going to be more expensive. That's going to show up in the price. If the greenhouse in New York employs workers who could have been better employed doing something else, that's going to raise the price of New York labor. It's going to raise the price of that New York tomato. And that's going to tell you that that tomato is socially expensive. You can compare those prices. And if you really want to be the socially conscious consumer, buy the cheaper one. The moral of that story is that there is more to life than British thermal units. It's not just a question of saving energy. Energy is one of the many, many things that we care about, when we make our choices about how to allocate resources, it's a mistake to focus on one of them. You want to focus on all these different things that people care about, 
And the only practical way to do that is to look at the one number that reflects all those things that people care about, and that's the price. So if that New York greenhouse displaces a housing development, or if it displaces a sports complex, that's going to make the New York tomato more expensive. If that California tomato displaces an aquarium, or if it employs workers who could be better employed fighting a forest fire, it's going to drive up the price of that California tomato. The price of the tomato reveals its social cost. And better yet, and better yet, not only does it reveal the social cost in a way that could not otherwise be revealed, it gives you a reason to care about that cost. It means that even if you're not a socially conscious consumer, even if you're not a socially responsible consumer, even if you're a completely selfish consumer, you're still going to do the right thing. What's the downside, then, of using prices? Why would we ever want to make these calculations in a way that doesn't use prices? There is one important downside to making these decisions by looking at prices, and that is that it robs you of an opportunity to flaunt your moral superiority. <laughs> You're doing what is best for you. You're doing what's cheapest for you. You're not making any sacrifices. You are also, incidentally, doing what's best for the rest of the world but you're not making any sacrifices so you don't get to show off what a good person you are. Well, uh, my next story about prices, I call it the czar's problem. Suppose I've made you the czar of American agriculture, and your job is to produce 10 bushels of wheat and to produce them as cheaply as possible. I want to show you how prices solve that problem. We've got, let's say, three farmers out there. Now, of course, this is a very simplified version of the real SARS problem. He's facing not three farmers, but three million farmers. And each of those farmers faces different costs. Farmer Brown, he can produce a bushel of wheat for a dollar. He can produce a second bushel for two dollars, a third bushel for another five. There's no reason the second bushel should cost the same amount as the first, right? because you're, 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 you've, uh, you're using different uh, techniques, different lands, different workers as you go from one bushel to the next. Jones can produce a bushel for two, a bushel for four, a bushel for five, et cetera. We've got Smith over there. And somehow, given all those data, you want to solve the problem of how do I produce 10 bushels of wheat as cheaply as possible? Well, that's a math problem. You could, for example, write down every possible schedule. Uh, you could say, well, what if we let Brown produce five bushels and Jones produce four and Smith produce one? Let's figure out the cost of that. What if we let Brown produce one and Jones four and Smith four? Let's figure out the cost of that. Let's do all those calculations, see which one's cheapest. Here's a different thing you could do. You could announce that wheat is going to be sold at $7 a bushel. And you know what happens? Brown says, okay, I'll produce my first bushel, and my second, and my third, and my fourth, and even my fifth, but I won't produce the sixth because that cost me $8, and I'll lose a dollar if I sell that. Jones will produce the first, second, and third. He won't produce the fourth. There's the bushels that get produced, the 10 cheapest possible bushels of wheat. Every bushel of wheat that gets produced gets produced at a cost of $7 or less per bushel. Every bushel that somebody decided not to produce was a bushel that would have cost more than $7 per bushel. 
the 10 cheapest bushels got produced. By using the price system, by using the price system, you automatically get your 10 bushels of wheat produced in the cheapest possible way out of all the different ways they could have been produced. And you do it without having to do all those calculations. And better yet, you do it without even having to know these numbers because I, of course, told you a lie when I said the czar knows these numbers. He doesn't know these numbers. He doesn't know what it costs to produce wheat on Farmer Brown's farm. He doesn't know what it costs to produce wheat on Farmer Jones's farm. Those numbers, too, are getting updated every hour as the weather changes, as a guy shows up for work or doesn't show up for work. Those numbers are changing every hour. The czar cannot solve this problem. It's not just too much calculation. It's too much information to gather and too much information that has to be continually updated. But by setting a price, or by letting the market set a price, and then letting the farmers make their own decisions, we solve the problem of getting our wheat produced as cheaply as it can possibly be produced. Um, notice that that method works only if all producers face the same price. Going back here, if we allowed Brown to sell his wheat at uh, $8 and Jones to sell his wheat at $2, then Brown would produce another bushel, Jones would produce fewer bushels. We'd be making wheat more expensive than it needs to be. So this means whenever you have a government program that favors one group over another by allowing them to charge higher prices, you are really screwing up this role of the price system in terms of figuring out what are the cheapest ways to do things. If you have a program that says some disadvantaged minority or some disadvantaged gender or something, uh, we want to make some, uh, uh, we want somehow to make their lives better. Well, there are many ways to make their lives better. The worst of those ways to make their lives better is probably to let them sell things at higher prices than other people are allowed to because you end up then producing things unnecessarily expensively. Um, another moral is that economics is not biology. In economics, you know, a lot of people, here's, the, here's the, the misconception that you often hear. People will say that the invisible hand of the market is sort of the analog of the ruthless natural selection of the evolutionary process. That the way the invisible hand works is it weeds out the weak, it weeds out the inefficient, it weeds out the bad competitors, and leaves the strong to survive, and they do a better job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People say that, people who say that either don't understand economics or don't understand biology. Because what the invisible hand of the marketplace is doing is something far, far, far more amazing than what the process of natural selection does. It is getting things produced in the absolute cheapest possible way. It's getting you the most efficient solutions to your problems, which is something that biology almost never does. Take, for example, the peacock's tail. Okay? What could be less efficient than that? Why do peacocks, why do male peacocks have tails that are so big that they make them easy prey for foxes? Why do they have tails that are so big they're actually difficult to carry around. They need to, to scrounge for additional food just to, to get the energy to carry those things around. Why do they do that? Because female peacocks like them. Okay. Why do female peacocks like them? It's actually kind of an interesting story. Suppose that a few female peacocks for 
purely random reasons start liking, deciding that they like big tails. Well, now, if you're a female peacock, you want your sons to be attractive to those females, which means you want your sons to have big tails. And how are you going to get sons with big tails? You've got to look for a mate with a big tail. So the fact that these peacocks over here, these female peacocks over here liked big tails, this female peacock over here, she doesn't care about tails, but she's still going to look for a long-tailed mate to help her produce sons that will appeal to those girls over there. Um, that process, and the biologists have figured this all out, explodes, and you tend to get exponential growth in that, just from this random fluctuation in tastes in one generation that can easily lead to exponential growth in the tails of the peacocks. Okay? It's a terrible outcome. It's a terrible outcome. In fact, if all the male peacocks could get together and make a pact, and say, let's all cut our tails in half. <laughs> Think how much better off they all would be. They can't agree to all cut them off, because if, if, if they say, let's cut them all off, the really long-tailed guys will say, you, you cut yours off, I'm keeping mine, right? <laughs> they don't want to give up their advantage. But if they can all agree to cut them in half, then nobody loses. The most attractive peacock is still the most attractive peacock. Second most attractive peacock, still the second most attractive peacock, but they're using a lot less energy dragging those tails around. And the only losers are our friends, the foxes, who we will assume we don't particularly care about in this, in this scenario. <laughs> Biology leads to terrible outcomes. Markets lead to good outcomes. That's a big difference. In fact, not just biology, but human relations outside of markets generally lead to terrible outcomes. Okay? Here's an observation. I got this from Roy Romer, who uh, was the former head of the Democratic National Committee, pointed it out to me uh, about his neighborhood, but it's absolutely true of my neighborhood as well. If you walk down my street on any October Saturday afternoon, this is what you're going to see. A man with a leaf blower blowing his leaves onto the next man's lawn. <laughs> they go out. They work for two or three hours. They all go back inside. Their lawns look exactly the way they did before they got started. Okay? And everybody has wasted three hours that they could have spent watching a football game. Okay? That's a bad outcome. If they could all agree, let's just not blow the leaves off our lawns, they'd all be better off. They can't reach that agreement because everybody knows that if they tried to reach that agreement, people would cheat on it. They would sneak out and try to be the only person with a clean lawn. There's a situation where human interactions lead to a really bad outcome. That's pretty typical. When you go to the ballpark and something exciting happens, what happens? Everybody stands up so everyone can see better, nobody sees any better. Okay. If you go to a party, it happened to me last night in the Renaissance uh, Hotel. You go to a party where everybody is having a separate conversation, and everybody is talking loudly in order to be heard over everybody else. What happens? We all go home with sore throats. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to talk today. We all go home with sore throats because we're all trying to be louder than the next person. If we all agreed to just keep our voices down, we'd all be heard equally well. And we go home without the sore throats. But that doesn't happen, even among these rational, socially conscious uh, libertarians. We all go in there, and we, and we, and we uh, ruin the evening for everybody else. 
Uh, and uh, so uh, it is the norm that in situations of competition, certainly in biology, certainly in most human affairs, that things work out pretty badly. That's what makes it all the more amazing that in free markets with prices, things work out not only pretty well, but as well as they possibly can. Those prices manage to convey so much information, and at the same time, so many incentives to act on that information, that we are led against all expectation, against all odds, to the best possible outcomes. The moral is, if you're looking for good outcomes, you should trust markets, not nature. And I am always struck by the rhetoric I hear from people who say it's so important when we manage our environment to remember that the environment is a delicate thing and that if you tinker with one little part of it, there's no telling how those consequences are going to ripple. And therefore, you should be very cautious about monkeying with the environment, killing off a little worm or something like that. Okay. Well, what that partly overlooks is that we have no particular reason to think the environment we've got is an especially good one in the first place. If you tinker with it, you might make it better, you might make it worse. Now, if you're risk averse, that is a reason to be a little cautious. Okay? But for goodness sake, these are the same people, often, who have no qualms at all about tinkering with markets, where one little tinkering in one little place can have ripple effects that are very hard to, to, to predict, and where, unlike in nature, we know that we are starting with tremendously efficient outcomes. So the downside of making a mistake is ever so much bigger in the marketplace than it is in the ecological situations. Let's try to be aware of that. Uh, my, my next story is a story I call The Wondrous Machine. Uh, you might have heard this story before. Uh, I've been telling it for many years, but uh, uh, the, the first version of it came from James Ingram at, uh, at North Carolina State University, as far as I'm aware. He might have stolen it from someplace else, I don't know. Um, this is a story about a man who invented a machine for producing cars. It's a machine that produces cars via an entirely new technology, has nothing to do with the technology they use in Detroit. In fact, this machine, the way it works is there's a, a, a big uh, uh, container on one end, and you pour wheat into this container. And then some gears start turning, and some cogs move, and some, some belts move, and, and somehow all sorts of, of stuff happens inside the machine, and then a car pops out the other end. Now, this guy, when he announced this technology, there were some people in Detroit who were pretty unhappy. Okay? This was going to displace them. It made them pretty unhappy. But by and large, the guy was a hero. Okay? I, I expect in real life a guy like this would be a hero. We make heroes out of Steve Jobs, people like that. People who invent these amazing new technologies that nobody ever dreamed of before. Okay? So there's all these newspaper stories about him and what a, what a heroic guy he is and about his childhood and about how he started his uh, business in a garage and all this stuff. And uh, 
uh, he's lionized. And he also becomes very rich. And uh, in order to get even richer, he sets up a big factory to produce cars. And because he's very, very rich, uh, he can afford to put that factory wherever he wants, so he puts it in the most beautiful place in the world on the Pacific Coast. And he, uh, that's the Pacific Ocean there. That's his factory. It's blacked out completely. There are no windows. There are no doors, because he doesn't want anybody to be able to tell how his machine works. It's a big secret, trade secret. So it's a completely black building. All anybody ever sees is trucks coming up to one door delivering wheat, and trucks coming out of the other door uh, bringing the cars out. It goes on for weeks and weeks. But there's all this mystery about how does this machine actually work? So one day, the Washington Post gets an investigative reporter to get a job as a janitor at this, uh, at this installation, infiltrates himself that way, and he's going to check out the machine at night and see if he can figure out how it works. And here's what he discovers. Building's empty. Building's empty. What there is, is there's a loading dock out back. There are ships that come and take the wheat, carry it to Japan, and then there are other ships that come back with cars on them, and the cars come out the other side of the building. This gets reported in the Washington Post. He doesn't have a machine at all. All he's doing is trading wheat for cars with foreigners who are stealing the jobs of our friends in Detroit. And all of a sudden, he's not a hero anymore. He's an outsourcer. He's an evil outsourcer. But you see, and I'm sure you do see, the point of the story is that the brilliant inventor and the evil outsourcer have exactly, exactly the same effects on everyone who was affected by this stuff. There's no reason to differentiate them. If one is a hero, the other's a hero. If one's a villain, the other's a villain. I think they're heroes. And most people have no trouble seeing that when it comes to the inventors. Okay? Thomas Edison displaced a lot of candle makers. Steve Jobs displaced a lot of people. A lot of technologies were made uh, obsolete by Steve Jobs. A lot of people, uh, 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 jobs were made obsolete by Thomas Edison. Most people seem to intuitively grasp that that's too bad, but that's okay. That's okay. That it's the price that we pay for technological progress that makes all of us so much richer that it's worth asking some people to bear those costs. We see that so easily when it comes to new inventions, and yet some people seem to find it so hard to see when it comes to finding new trading partners. But finding a new trading partner, it's not just an analogy. A trading partner is a technology. A trading partner is a machine where you put in wheat and outcome costs. Now, uh, I'll say a few words. Uh, there are always, of course, people uh, who are quick to say, well, sure. You start outsourcing these jobs. Um, I understand, you know, educated liberals, liberals not in our sense, educated people like Michael Kinsley say this kind of thing all the time. They say, uh, we understand that free trade creates wealth. 
we understand that it makes almost everyone richer and it's therefore a good thing. But we also understand that there are some losers from free trade and isn't it only fair that the winners should compensate the losers? The winners are being made so much richer, they could easily afford to compensate the losers, still be richer, isn't that the fair thing to do? Well, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on fairness, so take these words for what they're worth, okay? But I don't get it. Because here I've got, say, a $16 an hour American who for years has been charging me $16 an hour to do a job that I could have hired a $2 an hour Mexican to do had it not been for protectionist legislation that was put in place to protect this guy. And now, he feels like he's the one that's being unfairly treated. It seems, uh, it, it seems to me that when somebody loses his job because of a free trade agreement, what we learn from that is that this is somebody who's been overcharging us for a long time. And I'd say he owes us. Uh, in fact, I would not be averse to a, uh, to, a, to a tax, a new tax. If you lose your job because of a free trade agreement, you pay 10% uh, of all your wages for the last 10 years into the general treasury to compensate the rest of us for, for the, all that overcharging you've been doing. Uh, there are people who say, oh, come on now. Um, look, this guy, uh, all he did was respond to the incentives he was given. He was led to believe that his job was going to be protected. He was led to believe that we were going to have anti-outsourcing legislation. He therefore acquired appropriate skills to the world that he thought he was going to live in. He invested in those skills. Maybe we ought to honor that and uh, uh, feel some sympathy for him. Well, we can feel some sympathy for him. But the analogy I always think of is uh, there are a lot of schoolyards in, in this country where bullying is not particularly um, uh, discouraged. And there are a lot of bullies out there who thought that this regime was going to last for a long time. And therefore, they invested seriously in, in, in honing their bullying skills. Uh, they... they uh, they acquired those bullying skills, they practiced them, and now all of a sudden a new regime comes along, we're gonna have an anti-bullying policy. How unfair to these guys who, who did not see that coming, they, uh, they, uh, we've ruined the, the value of all their years of training. Uh, don't we owe them some compensation for this change in regime? Uh, I would say, no, I don't think we owe them anything. I think if anything, they owe us compensation for the way they've been treating us all this time, and I, I kind of tend to feel the same way about the people who take advantage of uh, protectionist legislation. Um, I should also, I, I, I don't want to go on too long with this, but I, I, it also strikes me as strangely disproportional for anyone to complain about free trade, which is the main force that has raised every one of us, including our Detroit auto workers, above the subsistence level. I mean, the reason that, that the reason we're all living above the subsistence level is because we can trade with each other. Imagine uh, uh, if you had to make your own clothes, your own food, your own everything, you'd be barely scraping by. That's true for the guys in Detroit, too. They are net winners from trade. Okay? And it seems kind of churlish 
to take this force which has done so much good for them and everyone else their entire lives and then focus on this one moment when it fails to do them a little bit of extra good and say that that's unfair, that's, that's, that, that they haven't gotten their due. I don't get that. Um, while we're on the topic of free trade, um, I think that this story I told you about the wondrous machine is really all you need to know about it. But I would like to elaborate on that a little bit by showing you some arithmetic. A little bit of quick arithmetic. I promise there won't be a lot of numbers here. Um, but let's think about what happens when we sign a free trade agreement or when we uh, find a new trading partner. Let's imagine an American, who of course is named Sam, and who makes cameras, sells them for $10 each. Let's think about what happens when a new foreign competitor comes along and offers them at $4 each. A new trading partner has been found or a trade barrier has come down. What's the effect of this going to be? First of all, every American who's already planning to buy a camera is going to save $6 as a result of that. That goes on the benefit side, right? Every existing American consumer, instead of having to pay $10 for a camera, will pay four. That's a plus. Sam, of course, is a net loser from this agreement. How much does he lose? How much does he lose? Well, it depends on how he reacts. One thing he could do is he could match the foreign price if he wants to. He might not want to. If he wants to, he can match the foreign price. In that case, he loses $6 per camera. Or if he prefers, he could get out of the camera business and do something else, in which case he loses what? I don't know, but I know he loses less than $6 per camera because that's, that's a floor. If he wants to limit his losses to $6 per camera, he can do it by staying in the camera business. He wouldn't be willing to take a loss of $7 per camera when he can limit his losses to six. So the loss to Sam is at most $6 per camera. If he stays in the camera business, he takes a $6 loss. If he gets out, he might take a smaller loss. Boom. Right there, the gains to Americans exceed, or at least match, the losses to Americans. But now there's another bunch of gains. There's a whole bunch of Americans out there who weren't willing to buy $10 cameras but are really happy to buy $4 cameras. Those are new American consumers. And we've made them pretty happy. We've allowed them to buy $4 cameras, which maybe they value at $6, so that's a gain to them. How much is that gain? I don't know, but I know it's positive. What's the net arithmetic for gains and losses to Americans? $6 gain per camera to the old consumers, a loss of at most $6 to the sellers, and some gain to the new consumers if you take $6 and subtract off something smaller than $6 and then add something to that, you're going to get something positive. So the net gain from free trade is, is positive. Uh, I see I have some slides here on what do we owe the losers. Uh, I hadn't realized I had slides on that, but we already talked about that. So uh, I'll go on to something else. Um, immigration. Immigration is another example of a wondrous machine. There we go. Immigration is another example of a wondrous machine. It's another form of free trade. Um, 
there are people who argue about the security aspects of allowing immigration and so on. I'm not an expert on that. I won't speak to that. But insofar as we have immigration laws that try to keep people out in order to prevent them from participating in our markets, those people, when they enter the United States, uh, by arithmetic of just the sort that we did for free trade, have got to make Americans as a whole richer. They also make themselves richer, and I think we should count that as a positive thing also. Let me look at uh, a little bit of the arithmetic of what happens, say, when we exclude a Mexican worker, when we turn a Mexican away at the border. The cost to the Mexican we turned away is about $7. I, I say that because uh, the wages for a new Mexican immigrant in this country are about $9 an hour. Wages back in Mexico are about 2 So we, we cut his wages by $7 when we send him back to Mexico. The offsetting benefit is that American workers gain about $3. Uh, let me explain what that means. One Mexican worker in this country depresses American wages for a certain class of workers depresses them infinitesimally, of course. One additional Mexican worker depresses wages infinitesimally. I take that infinitesimal depression in wages and I multiply it by 100 million American workers and I come up with about $3 an hour. And that's, that's based on the best estimates I can get from the labor economics literature. So when you exclude that Mexican, you've done $7 worth of damage to the guy you let, let, uh, kept out in order to do a $3 favor to some American workers. Of course, you've also caused a tremendous loss to American consumers and to American employers. In the short run, most of the loss, when you leave out, when you exclude cheap foreign workers, most of the loss is borne by employers in the short run and by consumers in the long run. So when you, when you keep this guy out, uh, uh, in, the, in the very short run, uh, many of the costs of that are borne by people named Walton, uh, but in the long run, they're borne by you and me, and uh, more importantly, by the people who shop at the stores owned by people named Walton. Um, and those losses I have not bothered to estimate, but they are absolutely, we know from theory and we know from estimates, substantially more than that $3 gain to American workers. So. Even if you just look at the Americans, as we did with free trade, those question marks there re represent numbers more than three. I didn't have time to get uh, good estimates for you. Even if you just look at Americans, keeping the Mexican out is a bad deal. I, I want to do a, a slightly different version of that calculation. Suppose that you take the view, to, suppose you take the extreme, I'll call it a left-wing view, that we don't care about consumers and we don't care about employers. We only care about workers. We take the pure, uh, we, 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 we are in solidarity with labor. That's all we care about is workers. Well, if all you care about is workers, then what you're comparing is a $7 loss to a Mexican worker versus a $3 gain to an American worker. If you think that $3 gain to the American worker is more important than the $7 loss to the Mexican worker, then you are implicitly saying that you think that, that you care a lot more about Americans than you do about Mexicans. I find that a little bit ugly, um, but 
when I say that, people come back to me and they say, well, you know, I care more about my family than I care about my neighbors, and I care more about my neighbors than I care about the people in my town, and I care more about the people in my town than I do about the people 100 miles away. Why isn't it okay for me to care a little more about American workers than about Mexican workers? I have two responses to that. First of all, I understand caring more about your family than your neighbors and more about your neighbors than the people in the next town over, but that's because I know those people, right? Once we get down to strangers, total strangers, I'm comparing that $3 an hour American worker in Arizona someplace versus that $7 an hour uh, uh, lost to the Mexican worker, uh, neither of whom I've ever met or I'm ever going to meet. Uh, to me, it's a little bit ugly to care more about one of those than about the other. Uh, and that's a matter of taste, and you may have a different taste in that matter. Uh, but then I go on to say, all right, even if you do feel okay about caring more about the American than the Mexican, do you really care that much more? That you're willing to do twice, more than twice the damage to this guy in order to get that benefit to this guy? And let's compound that by noticing that you're doing $7 worth of damage to somebody who is very, very poor in order to do $3 worth of good for somebody who is relatively very, very rich. Um, again, I, I won't deny your right to disagree with me and care a little more about people in your own country than people in other countries. I, I, don't, I don't like that, but if, 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 if you're okay with that, that's fine. Caring a little more. But this is, to justify this, you'd have to really care a lot more You'd have to, you'd, you'd have to, you know, you're going down the road to saying that, that, that we're not even going to consider these people people. And that, that I think, is starting to get kind of ugly. Um, let's see. Um, I have uh, one more story to tell. Um, I'm just I'm thinking about the time. Okay, I'll tell this story quickly, and then we'll, and then we'll stop. Uh, one more story about... Uh, the benefits of trade and how trade works, and in particular, how we know that everyone can benefit from trade. This is a story I call The Electrician and the Carpenter. I've been telling it to my students for a long time. It's a story about an electrician and a carpenter. They live across the street from each other. Each one of them wants to rewire his house. Each one of them wants to panel his den. The electrician can rewire his house in one hour. I apologize, there are like four numbers in here. If you don't like numbers, you might want to go to sleep. Um, the electrician can rewire his house. It takes him one hour. It takes him two hours to panel his den. Now, what about the carpenter? What does it take him to rewire it? Well, he's not, he's not so talented at rewiring. He makes a lot of mistakes. He has to keep starting over. That takes him four hours. And what about paneling his den? Well, you know, he's a carpenter. so. You might think he could panel his den faster than the electrician can panel his den, but that's not true because he's actually a lousy carpenter. Uh, and he makes a lot of mistakes at that too and, and has to keep starting over. It takes him three hours to panel his den. The carpenter is lousy at everything. Okay? They each do their work. The electrician is done in three hours and the carpenter, because he is slow and plodding and doesn't work very well, it takes him seven hours to do his two jobs. An economist comes along and analyzes this and says, what did it cost these people to do this work? What was the cost of doing this work? 
we don't measure cost in hours. We measure cost in opportunities foregone. I tell my students every cost is an opportunity cost. By definition, a cost is a foregone opportunity. Here then is how I measure the costs. For the electrician, the cost of rewiring is an hour, an hour in which he could have finished half his paneling job. The cost of rewiring is half a paneling. The cost for the carpenter of rewiring is he could have done one and a third panelings. In four hours, it takes him three hours to panel. One and a third panelings is the cost to him. It is costlier for the carpenter to rewire than, to, than, to, uh, than it is for the electrician to rewire. Four thirds is bigger than a half for anybody who uh, needs help with that. Um, it's costlier for the carpenter than it is for the electrician to do the rewiring. The way economists sum that up is by saying the electrician has a comparative advantage at rewiring. That's what comparative advantage means. On the paneling, it costs the electrician to do his paneling job. He sacrifices the opportunity to do two rewiring jobs. The carpenter sacrifices the opportunity to do three-fourths of a rewiring. The carpenter is the low-cost paneler. Three-quarters is less than two. The carpenter has the comparative advantage at paneling. He is lousy at it, but he's got the comparative advantage at it. Comparative advantage means that you are the person who gives up the least in order to do that thing. The electrician has a comparative advantage at rewiring. The carpenter has a comparative advantage at paneling. And now here is an insight from economics. If everyone specializes in their area of comparative advantage and they trade, then everyone can benefit. What does that mean in this case? It means the electrician, because he has the comparative advantage in rewiring, he does both rewiring jobs. The carpenter, because he has the comparative advantage at paneling, he does both paneling jobs. The electrician is now working two hours, two one-hour jobs instead of three. The carpenter is now working two three-hour jobs, six hours instead of seven. Everybody has saved an hour. This was a very simple example in which they traded one for one. In a more complicated example, it might, it, it might be, um, uh, or in a different example with different numbers, we might find out that they have to trade at some other ratio. Maybe the electrician has to do half a paneling job in order to get his full rewiring done. But there's always some trade when there is when there are two people with different comparative advantages, there is always some trade that will make them better, both better off. They can both benefit by specializing in their areas of comparative advantage. That's my first moral. When everyone specializes in his area of comparative advantage, everyone wins. My second moral is that everyone has a comparative advantage in something, and here's where the fancy math comes in. Why did the electrician have a comparative advantage in rewiring? Because a half is less than 4 thirds. Why did the carpenter have a comparative advantage at paneling? Because 3 fourths is less than 2. And here's the cool part. As soon as you know a half is less than 4 thirds, you know 3 fourths is going to have to be less than 2 because 2 is 1 over a half, and 3 fourths is, less, it is 1 over 4 thirds. And when you take 1 over each number, you reverse the direction of the inequality. Right? 
When you take reciprocals, you reverse the direction of the inequality. The numbers in the second row are the reciprocals of the numbers in the first row. Whichever way the inequality goes in the top row, it's got to go the opposite way in the bottom row. Which means that if one guy's got a comparative advantage at one thing, the other guy has to have a comparative advantage at the other thing. I often hear people talk about poor countries that can't get started because they're so unskilled that they have no comparative advantage at anything. Okay? That is mathematically impossible. If I have a comparative advantage at one thing compared to some guy in Mali, then he's got to have a comparative advantage over me at some other thing. A third moral is that it pays to be different. If these guys had been identical, that would have been the one case in which nobody has a comparative advantage. If everybody uh, had exactly the same skills, there would be no gains from trade. If everybody had exactly the same preferences, there'd be no gains from trade. You can gain from trade if you are different, either in your preferences or in your skills. If you are the only person in the neighborhood who likes liver, that's good for you because liver's gonna be cheap. And if you're the only person in your neighborhood who hates liver, that's good for you because you're gonna get the prime rib for cheap. If you're the only person in your neighborhood who knows how to mow a lawn, that's good for you uh, because uh, uh, you'll be able to make a good living mowing lawns. If you're the only person in your neighborhood who doesn't know how to mow a lawn, that's good for you because you're gonna be able to hire lawn mowers for cheap. Okay. Differences pay. A corollary to that moral is that all countries gain from trade, but the small countries gain more than the big countries do. And here's why. When the United States opens up a free trade agreement with, say, Panama, a much smaller country. So we have now a much, we've, we've expanded our circle of trading partners. The average person in that circle of trading partners is pretty similar to the average American. Just because there are a lot more Americans than there are Panamanians. The average person in that circle of trading partners is pretty similar to the average American. So from an American's point of view, when we start trading with Panama, we have not changed, our, our partners have not become all that much more different than we are on average. We do gain from that trade, but not nearly as much as the Panamanians who have had a huge change in the nature of their average trading partner and now have these much bigger differences that's available for them to exploit. Uh, I'll close with an exam problem I sometimes give to my freshmen. George and Mary run a company. Mary types 120 words per minute. George types 50 words per minute. True or false, Mary should do the typing. False, of course, because Mary is the brains of the outfit. George doesn't know how to do anything but type. Uh, and the, uh, and the uh, moral is, as with the carpenter, your absolute level of skill has nothing to do with what task you should be assigned to. You want to be assigned to the task where you have a comparative advantage. Your comparative advantage depends on your alternative opportunities. What other things could the carpenter be doing if he weren't paneling? Well, not much of value, so you might as well set him to paneling. What other things could George be doing if he weren't typing? Not much of value, you might as well set him to typing. But George, even though he's not very bright, can still contribute to the world by doing the typing so that Mary is free to do something else. And he can reap rewards for that. And he has a comparative advantage at typing. George has the comparative advantage at typing. 
Everybody's got a comparative advantage at something. Markets allow us to take advantage of those comparative advantages and to reap the rewards. And there I will stop.